0: From Exodus chapter 28, uh, 1 to 5. You want to turn in your Bibles. There's also a Bible provided for you in the row. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that as our free gift uh, to you this morning. And then the passage should also be up here on the screens. So, 28, 1 to 5, God's word says this Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. Aaron, and Aaron's sons, Nadab, and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priest. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. This is the word of the Lord. As I stated earlier, we're going to kind of skim through these chapters this morning. If you read in preparation for our worship gathering You'll know going through 28 and 29 and 30, there's just a lot of details about the stitching and the colors of fabrics and the things that would adorn the hymns. In chapter 29, there's a lot of details on sacrificing animals to consecrate the priesthood. There's a lot of blood. I'm just warning you this morning, we're going to talk a lot about blood, which makes me kind of squeamish. Possibly you also. So you're warned in advance. So we're going to hit on that. But there's just a lot of details in these chapters. So we're going to skim through these and kind of pull out a, a few key themes and then wrap it up by pointing ourselves back to Jesus, how these things point to Christ. And so we see a lot of details in these chapters, the fabrics, uh, the gems, the bells, there's uh, pomegranates that hem the outside of the garments. Reading through the remainder of this section, we understand this, that God cares about the way that we worship and the way that we approach Him in worship. This is; These are chapters about worshiping God. Uh, the tabernacle, as we learned, was a place where God's presence dwelt. We, we spent a lot of time on that last week. And the place where the Israelites would worship God through the ministry of the high priest. This week we're introduced to that ministry, that ministry of the high priest. The high priest, as evidence in his garments, was a, he was kind of a continuation of of the tabernacle ministry because a lot of the fabrics that he wore matched the fabrics that went into building uh, the tabernacle tent, the same colors and uh, different things like that. And also, I want you to notice this, that that the high priest was a man that was called by God. So the people didn't get to vote in the high priest. He didn't take the position uh, by power because he had great military might. But through the tribal lineage that God had chosen to serve him and his people, the high priest was a chosen servant of God, which brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this, a servant. The high priest serves God and God's people by offering sacrifices to the Lord. That's a summary, basically. If we had to put into a nutshell what the high priestly ministry was, is to serve God and God's people by offering sacrifices to the Lord. Exodus 28, the first half of that first verse there says, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel, Why? To serve me as priest, to serve the Lord and serve God's people. In this section, we're introduced to the human side of tabernacle ministry. The question is, who is going to meet with God for worship, prayer, and discernment? It's answered here, the high priest. Who will come into his presence every year, bringing the contributions of the people? The high priest. It's those called by God through Aaron's lineage, the Levites, who will serve God as mediator on behalf of the people. In our legal system, when families divide in times of, of hurt and pain, and they divide and separate. Oftentimes, what who comes in the middle to help them? But a mediator, right? A mediator will help them uh, distribute their goods and help serve them by being a go-between. And we want to think about the high priest in that same fashion. He was a mediator between God and the people, serving both God and serving uh, the people. As we're drawn through the passage, at this point, it's important to note the great level of detail that is handed down to Moses in the clothing of the high priest. And so that's our first point this morning, is the the clothing of the high priest, Are clothed. The high priest was clothed, and if you read through 28, you'll notice that the clothing was very detailed. All the the little spots were detailed. The the order in which he wore them and was dressed were all detailed and ordered by God. Exodus 28-2 says this, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, why? For glory and for beauty as they entered into the presence of God. The high priest is the only person that, sh- that, that would stand before God on behalf of Israel. And they must be clothed according to God's instruction to be able to stand before him. And the threat of not properly following his instructions, if you were to read through these chapters, like if he didn't put the bells on the, on the hem of his outer garment, it says that he would die in the presence of the Lord, right? Are you going to follow that instruction? God says, hey, if, if you don't have bells ringing when you come into my presence, then you're going to die. Man, I got bells all over me, right? I trust that God is truthful to his word, and so I'm going to follow his, his instructions. So the threat of not properly following these instructions was death in the holy presence of God. So what were these garments that he was wearing? It tells us uh, Exodus 28.4 kind of summarizes the different pieces of clothing that he would be wearing says, These are the garments they shall make a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. Now, chapter 28 details all of these garments, but it's a lot of detail that we're not going to read all together this morning. So I'm going to summarize uh, some of these components that are in uh, that make up the garments of the high priest. And so these are the specifics of the clothing worn by the high priest. We'll look at the details of the of the breast piece and the ephod in just a moment. The high priest would wear this, though, underneath everything. He would wear linen uh, to cover, it says in Scripture, to cover his nakedness, to cover his body. He would wear a linen garment underneath that would usually stretch from his knee, up to his elbows. So all that was covered with a linen garment. And then over this, it says in scripture that he would wear a coat of checker work, also made of linen. It would cover everything but his hands and his feet. So the only skin that he would have exposed besides his, his face would be his hands and his feet. And in chapter 29, when they make a sacrifice, these are actually, I know this is going to get, get a little bit, uh, Uh, Grotesque, but would be covered with with the blood of the sacrifice. So his hands were covered, and his his feet, I think we can liken this to when Moses enters the presence of God in chapter 3, in the bush that burns but is not consumed, what does God tell him to take off? He says, take off your sandals, your shoes, for you're standing on holy ground. So there's no detail in this chapter about uh, the priestly footwear. I think they were barefoot when they went in because they were standing in the presence of God. Over this uh, checker work garment, the, the priest wore a blue robe. Okay, So this colorful blue robe in which the hem was lined with colorful imitation pomegranates and bells. The bells are highlighted, I mentioned earlier, as special importance. Verse 35 notes that they are in, a, in place so that when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, it gives this warning that he will not die. I think it's actually a dual purpose for the people outside to know the importance of following God's instruction. When they hear that those bells ringing, they know, okay, we hit every detail because our high priest didn't drop dead in the presence of the Lord. And then also... There seems to be some sort of warning to to God as the priest was coming in, letting him know someone's coming to enter into his presence. The high priest would also wear a turban, so like a, a head covering, and a sash. The turban engraved with these words on a gold band around his head. It would say, holy to the Lord, emblazoned across his head. And then his head was covered with this turban as he drew near to God. Next, we look at, at the breast piece and the ephod. The ephod was a colorful bib, or if you think of like an apron that, that went over the robe, and it was a bunch of different colors. If you have a study Bible, you might have a picture of the high priestly garments in your Bible, and you'll see that it's, it's multicolored. This, this bib or, or apron almost that went over. And then the breast piece wasn't a piece of armor, but it was a piece of fabric that came down and then looped back up, almost creating a pocket on the front of the high priest. And then on the front of that breast piece was stones uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then within that fold, okay, within the fold of the, of the breast piece, there was uh, a few... Uh, peculiar items, if you've read through scripture, you may have heard of the the Urim and the Thummim. Has anybody heard of that before? The Urim and the Thummim, okay? The Urim and the Thummim, you guys are like, where is this going? We'll, We'll land the plane at some point, okay? The Urim and the Thummim were used to discern the will of God during this tabernacle and temple era. We don't know what those two items were. Uh, but we believe that they were almost cast like dice, so that when the way that they rolled, that they would understand what God wanted them to do, okay? And it's, it's important to note these two items, because we're going to connect them later on to the work of Christ and his ministry. So the Urim and, and the Thummim were then placed in there, and so it was almost like the priest would go in, to pray, to worship God, and then to discern God's will by, by casting this Urim and Thummim. Again, it's in the passage, but there's no detail given as to what these items are. I'm kind of thankful for that, because if not, we'd have little trinkets around here trying to, like, dice, throwing, okay, God, what's your will? You know, or you remember the old magic eight ball? Anybody have a magic eight ball? You shake that thing up and look and it'd spin around. I can't even remember what the options were, uh, but you'd, you'd read that and it'd tell you what to do. Fortunately, we don't have those things anymore because we have something called the Spirit and the Truth that guides us that has uh, taken place of the Urim and the Thummim. So now, looking to the Ephod and the Breastpiece, this is what these items look like. If you look to Exodus 28, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 and then skip down to verse 29. These were, were on the, those two pieces of. Of clothing, it says, as a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. I want to pause there. So I'm trying to I'm trying to paint a picture for you. You have this apron thing hanging over, and he the high priest would have these two stones up on his shoulders that has the names of the sons of Israel engraved on. On them, up on his shoulders up here. It says, And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then looking at the breastpiece, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart, when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And so, some details to fill in: that breastpiece, as I mentioned earlier, had rows of precious stones on them, and those stones represented the twelve tribes uh, of Israel. So, hopefully, you kind of have a picture of the high priestly garment. If not, go home, hit the Google search. Put it in, and there'll probably be a picture that pops up, kind of help you connect all the dots. So, clothed properly, Aaron or the high priest is now able to enter into the presence of the Lord to worship, pray, and discern the will of God on behalf of the people. The priest also bears the names of the people represented by stones on his shoulders that are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel and also on the breastpiece, which has the 12 stones arranged in rows across the front. And notice the placement across his heart, right? Across his heart. The names of Israel are across or near his heart. And I believe we begin to see, if we draw this back out and look towards Christ, we begin to see connections to the gospel here. The high priest is the only one clothed properly to enter the presence of God, adorned according to every last detail, obedient to every stitch and hem, color and stone, bell and pomegranate. Okay, but this question may come up as we look back to this man that is the high priest, because we know, according to God's word, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So how then can a sinful man such as the high priest take on this task to enter into the tabernacle, to enter into the holy of holies, and be in the presence of a holy and righteous God? How can he do that? How can he enter into the presence of the Lord? Our second point, he was consecrated. He was consecrated for this service. You may scratch your head and be like, I don't know what this word means. We don't use this word much in our culture, in society anymore. We've hit on it a little bit in other passages. It's not a word that we use every day. And so what does it mean? To consecrate something is to set it apart for God's holy service. In essence, it's a dedication. These men were being dedicated to the Lord's service. They were ordained. We use that word ordained. They were dedicated to God's service. So then, how is a sinful person to enter into the presence of the Lord? Okay, Here's the answer. By a lot of blood. By a lot of blood. And that's what we find in chapter 29. Exodus 29.1, then we'll skip to verses 10 to 12. We're not going to read the whole thing because there's just... I hate to be grim, but there's just blood everywhere by the end of that passage. Okay, and so it says this, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priest. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. If we were to read again the the chapter 29 in its entirety, we would find a very bloody chapter. Blood can make us squeamish and uncomfortable, at least it does for me. Anybody with me on that? I mean, who likes to see blood? I don't. My kids get cut and they bleed, like my wife Karen, can you handle that please? Because I'm getting a little squeamish. I might pass out. Each of the sacrifices show this, the transferring of guilt from the priest to be consecrated onto the blemish of the animal. Notice they lay their hands. Did you notice that he lays his hands on the head of the animal, symbolically transferring his sin and guilt and shame onto that animal, at which point then what happens to that poor innocent animal? It's sacrificed. All the animal lovers in the room, including myself, are like, oh, not the animals. They lay their their hands on the head of the animal, transferring sin onto them. The bottom line is this. By the end of chapter 29, we're confronted again with a bloody picture. You're like, why do you keep saying that? Because I want this point to get across to you. There's, There's blood everywhere. It's not just on the altar, but you see it if you read through 29, it's sprinkled all over the place. The high priest has it on himself. And then here's, here's the thing. This is just one day. This is just one day of consecration. Let's look at uh, 29, 35 to 36. If you look to the screen, it says, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you and hear this, through seven days, you, or, you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Okay, this process went on, church, for seven days, animals being sacrificed to prepare for this high priest to enter into the holy presence of God. And I think oftentimes we gloss over this picture, and we can't, we have to see the blood in order for us to connect to what the good news is that we're going to wrap up with at the end of the sermon. Okay? The bad news has to come in order for us to truly appreciate the gospel message, the saving message of Jesus. So the process was to take place for seven days, sacrifice after sacrifice, blood shed, offerings burnt. The process had to be grueling, exhausting. Imagine handling the animals. Okay? Are, are bulls easy hand, uh, animals to handle? You've been around livestock before? They're stubborn, they're mean, they're big, they smell. This is the cost of sin. This is the severity of, of entering into God's holy presence must much blood must be shed before the high priest adorned with the name of names of God's people could enter to worship and pray and discern the will of God blood had to be shed all this blood had to be shed before the priest could walk into his holy presence and then towards this the veil Remember we talked about the veil last week. He said we're going to circle back around to the veil or the curtain. There was a curtain that separated uh, the holy place, the, the entrance of the tabernacle, from the holy of holies. And this veil had cherubim on it. Cherubim are, are kind of the, the guarding uh, angels of God, okay? Keeping people at bay from the presence of God because if they, if they entered into the presence of God in an unworthy manner, they would just burn up. So we have this, this symbolism of the protecting angels, guarding humanity from God's presence, Harkening back, we connected this to the cherubim that, that protected the Garden of Eden after the banishment of Adam and Eve. Again, we, we witness the cost to enter the presence of God. Every detail must be accounted for. Did you hear me? Every detail must be accounted for. The clothing must be perfect. The order of sacrifice. The burnt offering must be made. Blood must be shed. Then and only then could one man enter the presence of God once a year, entering through the veil, through the curtain, in hopes. I mean, I can't imagine the nerves that this man had as he went through the veil. Did I do everything right? Did the craftsmen sew all, all the pieces of fabric together? Is, are the stones in the right place? Are, are the bells loud enough? Was the order of sacrifice good enough? Did, I, did we miss a day? Did we only do six days of consecration or did we do the full seven? Ultimately, this process in all of its exhaustive detail had to, I believe, drive God's people to say, There's a better way. There has to be a better way. It has to bring us to this point of questioning. Does God have a plan to bring all these animal sacrifices to an end? Where is this heading? What is the fulfillment of this plan? Is this this it, God? That we have to spend seven days sacrificing animals in order for one person to enter the presence of God, to pray and worship and discern the will of God? Is this it? This all points to this. It points to a great high priest who would come. And this great high priest fulfills every last detail. And he does so, hear this, once and for all. Once and for all. The great high priest who bears the sin of the world on his shoulders for those who will take his name as their own name. Okay, we're identified by this name. We're identified as Christians. We're in the family of God. We're identified with Christ. We take His name. So we take His name as our own name, just as the high priest in the Old Testament bore the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders we needed a high priest who would carry the names of god's people across his heart interceding and mediating praying on behalf of those who are found in his mercy and grace the bible tells us in romans eight thirty four that jesus our great high priest is at the right hand of god praying on your behalf did you know that says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding on behalf of you. If you are found in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus, Jesus is praying for you right now. We have a high priest who would no longer rely on a weird trinket called the Urim and the Thummim to discern the will of God. But Jesus rather guides his people with this. He guides them in spirit and in truth. He guides us through the truth of his word, the Bible. We believe that this is God's word. And he's awakened our dead souls to new life through his guiding and indwelling Holy Spirit. He gives us guidance through the truth of his word and his Holy Spirit that has indwelled us. He is, our last point, Christ, our high priest. He is Christ, our high priest. The tabernacle and the priesthood are directly tied together, and Jesus fulfills their purpose of allowing sinful humanity to be in the presence of our holy God and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus, after He came in the flesh and fulfilled all righteousness, was condemned to bear the sin of the world on the cross. But if you read through Scripture, you'll know the trial was was a sham. Okay, both, and here's this, we want to blame one group or the other, we want to blame the Romans or we want to blame the Jews, but it was both Gentile and Jew that condemned Jesus together. And ultimately, it was our sin that put him there. It was the will of the Father. The crowds cried out, when they could have chosen to free Jesus, they shouted these words, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus was condemned to death. He was beaten. And notice this, much blood was shed. His blood was shed. Just like the blood of bulls and goats, except his blood was better. Because it is the last blood sacrifice. Jesus is the last sacrifice. Because his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all sin for those who will place their faith and trust in his work on the cross. And we see what happens when our great, perfect, spotless high priest died on the cross. If we look to Matthew 27, 50-51, it says this. I want you to get the picture. Jesus here is nailed to a cross. He He was condemned to death. Before he went to the cross, he was beaten with a cat of nine tails which had items woven into it which would pull his, his flesh from his body and he bled and he carried the cross okay, in much the same way as the high priest bore the names of God's people on his shoulders. He had the cross on his shoulders and drug it through the streets up to that hill called Golgotha. And on the cross, it says this, It says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and it says, yielded up his spirit. You see, we didn't take it from him. He gave it up himself. And then it says this. It takes us now to the temple or the tabernacle, and it says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That curtain with the cherubim on it, that curtain that kept everybody at bay, separated from the presence of God, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, okay? From top to bottom. And it says this, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The veil, the curtain that separated access to God, is now open torn from top to bottom, leaving no doubt that it was God himself that opened the way. There wasn't some little guy in the temple with a pair of scissors cutting from the bottom to the top. But God separated the veil from top to bottom through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that we are now, through Jesus, able to have access to God. Through our great high priest, we too, church, uh, First Peter talks about this, that we are a holy priesthood. Bearing the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ and pointing them to the light of hope found only in Jesus. And God's word says that we can enter confidently through the work, through his work, We don't approach God in fear and trembling. Remember a few weeks ago, we have Israel at at Mount Sinai, and they're at the bottom, and they're in fear and trembling of the presence of God. But the book of Hebrews tells us that we can enter this confidently through the work of Jesus Christ, through our great high priest. We don't approach God any longer in fear and trembling, but we boldly approach His throne, clothed in the perfection of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19-23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, I want you to hear this, through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, then let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us then hold fast to the con- our confession of hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We can hold fast to the hope of Christ because he is so faithful to us. We no longer need an intercessor and mediator because Jesus is our perfect intercession and mediator. That's why my title is pastor and not priest. I'm not your priest. I can't forgive your sins my blood being shed means nothing. The only one that can forgive your sins is Jesus Christ, and he has accomplished that on his cross. Our perfect high priest has come. We no longer need a priest to intercede or plead for us, because Jesus is always doing that. We don't need And a human priest, church, Jesus has accomplished this. And His Word says that He's pleading our case before God so that for all eternity, we're declared this, not guilty. Not guilty. We're declared perfect and holy and righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but through faith in His finished work through his shed blood, through the way that he has opened as the curtain has been torn and we've been ushered into the presence of God as sons and daughters of the king. So then what do we do with this? A few points of application, not in your notes. Feel free to write these down in the margin. One, the first thing we do is this. Last week we talked about Sabbath. We talked about rest. The first thing we do is we rest in the perfection of Jesus. Rest in the righteousness of Christ. Rest in Jesus. The second thing we do, point those who are distant from God to the perfection of Jesus as our only hope. We point everybody to Christ, our only hope. The gospel is our only hope. Nothing can save us but Jesus. Point people to Christ. And then lastly, we offer our whole life in response to what Christ has done. We respond to Him. We offer our whole life in service to Jesus. Okay? It's not just the leaders of the church. It's not just the pastors and the elders and the deacons. But Christ has called His whole church to live on mission for Him. Paul says this in Romans 12:1. He says, "I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, he says this to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship." Notice a living sacrifice. We're to live for Christ. The whole trajectory of our life after we're saved through Jesus is that we are on mission for Him, living for Him. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Jesus. We circle back around to proper worship of God. All the blood of the Old Testament, all the detail, all the fear and trembling, it all pointed to a better way provided through the work of Jesus, covering and forgiving us our sin. We then, in service to him, offer our bodies, our lives, not in death, but as a living sacrifice, wholly dedicated to his mission and his work and ultimately his glory. And so I want to offer you this. For those of you who are in the room and, and you would identify with being someone who's in unbelief, you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you haven't placed your, your faith in him, Jesus offers you The free gift of grace, of eternal salvation, of forgiveness of sins, of purpose in life through faith in his work. Place your faith and trust in Jesus. He came and he lived perfectly in your place, fully obeying God's law. And he went to a cross and he died on the cross and he shed a blood shed his blood covering your sin, and he raised from the dead in victory over sin and death, and he ascended to heaven, and he is currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Place your faith and trust in Jesus. If you've made that decision, we'll have elders in the front of the room as we respond in song, and you can come down with them, and they will pray with you, and they will give you next steps of obedience as you choose to follow Jesus.